Welcome to another podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. My name is Raj Basord and I'm a consultant psychiatrist based at the Bethlehem Royal and Morsley Hospitals in South London. Today I'm interviewing Mark Walterfang, who's a psychiatrist based at the University of Melbourne at the Melbourne Neuropsychiatry Centre at the Department of Psychiatry. And he and several co-authors have published a fascinating paper in the June edition of the British Journal of Psychiatry. And the title of the paper is Morphology of the Corpus Callosum at Different Stages of Schizophrenia, Cross-Sectional Study in First Episode and Chronic Illness. So first of all, Mark, let me ask you, why is there an interest in the study of the corpus callosum in relationship to uh, schizophrenia? Raj, the first thing I would say is that there's a lot of interest at the moment in uh, connectivity at a functional level and at an anatomical level in schizophrenia. And one of the things that seems to be uh, ringing true in the last five to ten years of research is that there does seem to be some evidence that uh, there is anatomical disconnectivity in certainly a subgroup of patients with schizophrenia. We've known for some time that there's disconnectivity at a functional level. That's a fairly robust finding from functional imaging studies. But only with recent developments in neuroimaging analysis have we really been able to look at uh, the anatomical substrate of connectivity. The reason that the callosum is interesting from this perspective is that it's the largest white matter bundle in the brain as it connects most of the, uh, the association cortices which are of interest to us in schizophrenia. Uh, and additionally to that, um, the callosum carries fibres across the hemispheres and there is certainly a school of thought that uh, schizophrenia to a degree may be uh, related to aberrant um, development of lateralisation in the human brain. So for those reasons, the corpus callosum is of a great interest to the schizophrenia community and has been for some years. Uh, thank you for that. That's a very helpful description of the corpus callosum. But could you say a little bit more, though, about it for the neuroanatomically naive amongst us in terms of roughly where is it located in the brain and roughly what, what, is, what is it thought to be the function of the corpus callosum? The corpus callosum is a very large white matter bundle that connects the two hemispheres and carries hundreds of millions of, of axons. The... the most of the connections that run through the corpus callosum are homotopic in that they connect, uh, say, for example, the frontal cortex to the frontal cortex, a contralateral to it, the parietal cortex to the parietal cortex, contralateral to it. Uh, there are some connections that are heterotopic which connect different cortical regions, but the majority are, are homotopic. And what the corpus callosum does is it facilitates transfer in a very efficient manner between the two cerebral hemispheres. And one of the things that this is really critically important in, and certainly from the perspective of humans, is the development of lateralised functions. Perhaps uh, one of the most significant that, that some would argue defines us as a species is speech. So the development of the corpus callosum, which begins uh, well in the gestational period, seems to allow for the development of rapid interhemispheric transfer of information, which allows for the development of lateralised functions. What about the previous research in this area on the link between the corpus callosum and schizophrenia? You start your paper with a very interesting summary suggesting there have been conflicting results and your paper starts with a review uh, looking at sort of structural uh, imaging studies. Could you talk us through that? The interest in the corpus callosum and schizophrenia started after the observation 
that patients with a genesis of the corpus callosum, either total agenesis, so the, the loss of development of the corpus callosum, which can happen following intrauterine insults and in a number of genetic conditions, but also the, um, if you like, the partial agenesis of the corpus callosum, that these patients seem to have a significantly elevated risk of schizophrenia-like psychosis. So a great deal of interest developed in examining the corpus callosum about the same time as magnetic resonance imaging really came on board in neuroscience research. One of the problems though, and this is something that really affects the, the whole of, of MRI research, not just in psychiatric disorders but in other um, neurological disorders, is that different people do things in very different ways. One of the things that was done initially was just looking at the overall size of the corpus callosum on a mid-sagittal image, so a slice that cuts directly through the centre of the brain. Um, and what we generally see, and when a meta-analysis reviewing these studies was done, is that there's a small but significant reduction, perhaps of the order of 1% in overall size. But because the corpus callosum is topographically organised, uh, subtle regional reductions may actually a bit, may be a bit more reflective of what is happening in the brain. We know that in schizophrenia there seem to be changes happening particularly in frontal regions and in temporal regions and it may be that by looking more closely at a regional analysis of the corpus callosum that you can actually detect subtle differences that might be lost if you're just looking at the overall size of the structure. And that's really what um, defined the last 10 years of callosal research, different people slicing up the corpus callosum in different ways. We chose the, the, the method that we did because, for a couple of reasons. One is that we take a number of slices through the callosum, so we're able to detect really quite subtle changes, some of the changes that we see in this paper. One of the other reasons is a statistical reason, because people have very commonly divided the corpus callosum into arbitrarily defined reasons. The, the method of Weitelson is, is probably the most common, which divides the corpus callosum into areas that are, are felt to be are connecting different regions of the cortex. Uh, but one of the problems with that is that almost invariably people that use these methods don't make corrections for multiple comparisons and are very likely to get false positive results. So we've used a very a careful and statistically conservative method of analysis that really accounts for this. You've already said a little bit about the methodology of your particular study. Could you talk us through um, the method of the study? How was it done? Um, what kind of patients you recruited and who you compared them with? Raj, what, what we aimed to do was to use one of the advantages that our research group has, and that's numbers. We generally are able to look at very large cohorts of patients with schizophrenia, and in this study we aimed to look at patients across illness stages. So we looked at a large group of patients that included patients with their first episode of a schizophrenia spectrum psychosis, including schizophrenia, schizophreniform and schizoaffective disorder, and to compare them to patients with established illness, and then to compare these groups to control participants that we'd previously recruited. We essentially looked at the, the MR images of the brain, which are all done on the same scanner, and we did a particular transformation that tried to account for regional differences in head size because we know that there are differential effects of head size on corpus callosum size and what we were looking for was to try and conduct a, a shape analysis that wouldn't necessarily be uh, confounded by these differing relationships across genders and, and potentially across disorders between callosal size and head size. So we 
took the mid-sagittal slice of, of the brain where the corpus callosum is most well defined and is arguably the brightest and, and differentiated from the surrounding tissues and then we applied a nine parameter linear transformation to this uh, and what this does is essentially it it accounts for differences in head sizes between individuals across the group as a whole and also within groups. So it preserves the shape of the corpus callosum, but essentially normalizes them all for brain size. And there's some good research that suggests that using this sort of transformation, rather than using um, uh, a covariance for head size is actually uh, perhaps more conservative, but more accurate and more able to detect true change. Um, and once we'd done that, we then used a method that essentially does teppanyaki on the callosum, if you like, that, that slices it up using a, a method that is free of any kind of uh, anatomical assumptions about what different regions of the callosum connect to. If we construct a, a line that essentially carves the callosum in two and then carve that up into 40 different sections and perpendicular to that line we um, create a callosal slice to look at the width of the callosum at that particular point. Then we um, use a permutation analysis, something drawn from functional imaging, which um, accounts for the fact that, non in, that, that adjacent measures of the corpus callosum are not independent and it accounts for for that and also um, <clears throat> to minimise the risk of false positives. And it's a fairly conservative statistical method to permute at each point. So we look for a regional effect with, with uh, sorry, we look for a group effect with a MANIVA and then we use step-down t-testing to look for a regional effect. So what we've done is we've borrowed something from functional imaging, which commonly is looking at tens of thousands of different data points. We've used the permutation analysis borrowed from that to look at um, an anatomical analysis of the corpus callosum. And what were your findings? The initial finding was that when we look at overall callosal size, across the groups there really is no difference. Uh, the means are smaller in the patient groups, but there's really no significant difference when you're just looking at the overall size of the callosum. What was perhaps the most interesting finding to us is that both in first episode patients and in patients with established illness, we see reductions at the level of the genu of the corpus callosum. It's, it's thinner, if you like, as, as a proxy measure for being smaller. And in the anterior genu, in areas that connect the orbitofrontal and medial frontal cortices, and this was present in both first episode and chronic schizophrenia groups. Other studies have looked at these groups in isolation. We're looking at these two different groups with the same methodology and showing that these changes in connecting frontal cortex are present at the onset of illness and still present with established illness. What we also saw in the established illness group was that there were also reductions further along in the corpus callosum in, in regions that connect um, the superior parietal cortex and, and the cingulate gyrus. Now, it's, it, because this is a fundamentally cross-sectional study, we can't say that, that further reductions occur with developed illness. It may be that the patients who have an established illness in this study are merely a subset of the patients at first episode who have more severe illness. So we can't really say that patients with established illness actually get greater reductions as illness progresses, although there's a school of thought suggesting that these neuroimaging changes progress. This study doesn't necessarily tell us that as it's not a truly longitudinal study but we see robust changes in the anterior callosum collecting, connecting frontal lobe regions at the onset of illness. 
I thought you were also able to do a, uh, a, a sub-analysis of different disorders within the schizophrenia group, like schizophreniform disorder and schizoaffective disorder. We, we were able to do a, a sub-analysis of those groups. And what we saw, which was of interest to us, in the schizoaffective disorder group, uh, they showed a trend towards not only a reduction in the anterior genu, but also we saw some increases in slices towards the posterior callosum when compared with the control group. And this, this was really quite interesting to us. Um, most of the, the, these patients have a significant affective component to their illness, and they really cleaved quite well from patients with uh, schizophreniform disorder and schizophrenia with this apparent expansion. We have a number of other studies that use the same methodology looking at different patient groups. We've looked at a number of patients with bipolar disorder and also some patients with uh, depression. And what we see in depression are expansions in the same region that we see here in the schizoaffective disorder group. Some people might be a bit surprised um, that you're still doing structural imaging. They, they, they may think that really uh, the future is functional imaging, like functional MRI. Um, what's your argument for why there's still a, a role or a need for structural imaging? That's a good question, Raj. A lot of people also say, uh, well, many clinicians that I talk to will say, well, why are you doing this research? Won't genetics ultimately provide us the answer? And I think there's, there's an argument for research in every area of the spectrum of illness, from, from genome through to kind of structural or functional changes to behavioural changes to treatment and illness outcome. I, I think one of the reasons that we continue to look at structural data is the Structural data or magnetic resonance imaging data is, is very rich and there are many different things it can tell you if you pose it the right questions. And if you're abreast of the research in this area, it certainly struck us that perhaps when it came to the structure of the callosum in this illness that there were perhaps some uh, different questions that could be asked and, and we've certainly been posing those in terms of uh, the effect of illness stages but perhaps also improvements to methodology for making these analyses. And I, I also think that structural imaging still has uh, quite a bit to tell us. Yes, there are limits. There are limits to the spatial resolution of of what the machines uh, can give us when it comes to structural imaging and, and so it's quite possible that what we see in any given voxel, uh, the, the, the data that we get from that voxel is relatively insensitive to the very subtle changes that, that we can see in mental illnesses like schizophrenia. But what we have seen in the last 10 or 15 years of MRI research is that those changes are there and that they can provide very, very useful pointers for further research, whether that be leading on to uh, functional imaging or perhaps even microstructural imaging, magnetic resonance imaging at a structural level using techniques such as diffusion tensor imaging can tell us a lot more than volumetric imaging alone. It's still fundamentally a structural technique that's only just begun to um, explore its possibilities in schizophrenia, but I think it potentially has a lot more to tell us. And as uh, as each month and each year goes on, there are new refinements to structural imaging that uh, yield us more and more information about the illnesses that we uh, submit to it. I want to go back to this very interesting point in terms of the huge attempts you made to control for brain and head size. Isn't that um, kind of resting on an assumption that what will underlie the pathology of schizophrenia is a specific 
regional difference, uh, depending on the particular region you're looking at. Whereas I thought there were some neuroscientists that believed uh, believe schizophrenia could be viewed as a kind of total brain disorder. In other words, there'll be problems found a- across a wide variety of regions. So aren't there some uh, assumptions your, your technique of, of the controlling for, for overall head and brain size uh, kind of rests on, which, which potentially are problematic? I'm not sure I agree with that. I guess what we, what we were looking for was to look at regional... Uh, at its essence, this is a study that's looking for shape changes. And whilst fundamentally I, I agree that um, schizophrenia is probably going to be a brain-wide disease, but that the effects of that disease are probably going to be more evident and more detectable to the limits of the spatial resolution of the, of the techniques that we use, particularly with structural imaging. They're going to be more detectable in some regions more than others. And hence why we were looking for a regional effect, because certainly we know from the vast body of neuroimaging research, and that is at a functional level as well as a structural level, that there seem to be uh, more regionally detectable changes. I don't think that necessarily means that schizophrenia is a, a regionally specific brain disease. I would agree that it's probably a, a brain-wide disease, but it's more about, if you like, what, um, what, what pops above the surface of the water that we're able to detect with current methods. And that's why I still think looking at shape is important. If, for example, we saw an overall thinner corpus callosum, which we have seen in some other studies that we we currently have uh, in submission and in press on bipolar disorder, then this method would detect that too. But this method has the power to detect a global change as well as a regional change. So arguably, we're armed to be able to detect both if either or both are actually present. Mark Walterfang, thank you very much indeed.